Merry Christmas. Thank you, Will and team, for that wonderful music. If you're not feeling joy after that, I don't know what's going on in your head. It is great. You know, come. Come bow before him. That's what Christmas is all about. Um, thank you for Will praying for us. Uh, we already had our passage read out of Zephaniah, but we'll be visiting that this morning. If you want to open your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at the last part of that chapter. And for those of you who do not frequent the minor prophets too often, uh, Zephaniah is going to be one of those guys that uh, you might rightly confess you don't know or have never heard of. But we're going to get into him this morning and uh, hear what he has to say to us. So uh, it'd be a good idea to get your phones tuned in or your Bibles open. It is Christmas season. Uh, it is the time of Advent, and we lit the candle of joy this morning. Um, joy is an amazing thing. Uh, sometimes we get that a little mixed up in our definitions with the uh, concept of happiness. Uh, Christmas is, for most of us, usually a happy time. Uh, when I ask, if I were to ask you this morning, um, what's the most happiness that you've had at Christmas? You might think of a favorite gift you received. Uh, family and friends coming back together, reuniting, uh, great feast that you had. There's all kinds of thoughts that go on in our head. As I was preparing for the sermon, I was thinking about asking you to think about what's the, your favorite gift that you ever got for Christmas. And uh, it's amazing, as I was testing that question out on different people, uh, more often than not, people go back to their childhood. Uh, it's not a gift they received uh, this year or last year. And as adults, the older you get, it's not even anything you've received in the last 20 years. But usually we go back to our childhood. For me, it was a man from uncle spy gun. Now, if you're not old enough to remember the early 60s with the TV show Man from Uncle, bear with me for just a second. It was a spy show, classic Cold War programming uh, and I saw on TV, my brother and I both did, we wanted the, uh, it looked like a 60s portable radio. It was that long, about that tall. Uh, the bottom half was in leather, and there was a dial on the top, and it moved a little tuner back and forward, and you could tune in to different radio stations, and you're saying, what does that have to do with a gun? Well, cool as it may be, all you had to do was press a little hidden button and the uh, barrel of the gun would shoot out from the side, you press another button, and the speaker part was the stock would fold out, came with its own pair of dark sunglasses and fake walkie-talkie. So you were set to take on all the evil in the world. When I got up in that Christmas morning at my grandma's house and I saw that I had received exactly what I had asked for, I was filled with happiness. Happy, happy, happy. My brother was in despair because instead, my grandfather, being the person that he is, and I don't know if this is where I get it, but had given my brother a little baby doll, and Dean was not happy. There was something else for him, but all of the pictures from that year focused on him getting the doll, which he promptly opened, and he hurled it across the table in disgust. Uh, I found it uh, later in the week 
where it pretty much had laid for most of the week against the wall, and I put it back in his box so that when we got home to Omaha, it was still there with him, just to give him happiness, right? <laughs> but what's your favorite gift? You know, what, what thing did you receive that produces happiness at the Christmas season for you? Yeah. Junior high? Oh, junior high's leaving? Yes. Junior high, leave. <laughs> we don't want you. Yeah, go away. So thank you for that reminder. So yes, if you're in junior high, you'll find a doll and a man from Uncle Gun waiting for you in the back room. So that's happiness. Happiness is uh, dealing with circumstances. Um, all the things that make Christmas so special. But for some of us, Christmas isn't always so happy, right? Some of us associate this time of the year with the death of someone that we love, uh, some disaster in the family, fighting at the table. Uh, and so when you say Christmas, not everyone is rejoicing. Not everyone is feeling it. And so we have to be careful. You know, We don't want to assume that that is everyone's intention. But what I would like to focus on this morning, just as we did when we lit this Advent candle, is that joy, joy is independent of circumstances. You see, when we think of that, and we say, well, I'm really happy, I'm sort of happy, uh, I'm not very happy at all, and I'm miserable, we're not focused on joy. That's not the biblical concept of joy. That's happiness. It's an emotion that is dependent upon uh, the circumstances of our life. Joy, in contrast, is something that is transcendent to our human experience. It is something that is not really uh, dependent upon me creating it. Um, I could sit here and say to you this morning, get happy. Be happy. Do your best to be happy. No matter how you feel, no matter what else is going on in your life when you walked in these doors, I want you to be happy to this morning. Do your best. And you could sit there and you could just scrunch your face up and think of something that makes you happy. Uh, what would that be? And you, could, you might be able to do it. But if I said to you, be joyful, it would really be the wrong concept. Uh, you cannot produce joy. Joy is something that is available to us. It's there for the taking, but it's something that is from outside of us. Well, let, let me think of it this way. Uh, your car. It needs gas to run, correct? So you drive around town, you do your errands, you go visit people, you do whatever you do with your car. But eventually, that little needle starts moving down to empty. And you have to go to some place and fill your car up. Now, you might have one of the fancy new electric cars and you're just going to charge it up. But whatever you have to do, it's not going to run forever. When my car gets down to about a half a tank, I start thinking about, boy, I need to refill. I need to do something so that I don't run any risk of stalling out, being out of gas. There's nothing worse than a car that cannot run. What do you do with it? You may have all the fancy bells and whistles and gizmos and things that make it a super neat car, truck, whatever it is that you're driving. But if it doesn't have the fuel to make it work, it just sits there. It's worthless in a sense. So, does anything produce as much happiness, circumstances, as when you fill that car with gas? You got a full tank, the world is your oyster. You can go anywhere you want, you can do anything, and it just feels great. 
but you had to go somewhere outside of that car, outside of your own resources, and fill the tank. You had to roll up to a pump, take the hose off, put it in your car, and you had to wait as your car was filled with gasoline. That's kind of the scriptural idea of joy. Joy is from God. Joy is from above. Joy is always there. It doesn't matter if your life is going great or if you're having difficulties. It doesn't matter if it's Christmas or if it's Easter or if it's the middle of the summer. It doesn't matter if you've got friends or if you're lonely. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor. Joy is always there. Because you see, that's God. One of the attributes of God is joy. He's never not joyful. That really rocks our perception of God in some ways, doesn't it? Because it's much easier to think about God as this uh, grumpy old man who is just full of judgment and is waiting for us to screw up our lives, to be disobedient to him, so that he can execute judgment upon us. But that's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says that he is joyful. That's what Zephaniah says in his passage this morning. God is joyful. So, if I were to say to you this morning, be joyful, you can't sit there and, and generate it. The only thing you can do is like a car coming up to the service station is connect to God. Fill your tank with his joy coming into your life. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in Philippians 4.4, be joyful always. Rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. It's not because that you can do this on your own because it's an effort in human emotions. It's because God is always joyful. And Paul expects us as believers in Christ to have access to that joy at any time of the day, of the night, any day of the week. I've been with people in the worst of times as a pastor. I've been in the hospital when the decision is made to disconnect the machines. I've been there when car accidents, when people, young ones especially, have died. I've been with people when they receive terrible news about loved ones serving in the military who aren't coming home, or maybe they're only coming home in parts. It doesn't matter. Circumstances do not impugn upon joy. We're singing this morning, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Yeah, God is joy. Nothing's outside of his scope of power, of his care, of his abilities. Let's take a look and see if I can back up what I'm saying. Chapter 3 of Zephaniah. Zephaniah, admittedly, as I said, may be one of those people that when you get to heaven, if that's where you're going, and I hope it is, that when you get there and you meet him and he says, hi, my name is Zeph, you're going to say, what? Zeph? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote a book of the Bible, and we're going to have to confess, well, I don't know that I've ever read it. I don't even know where it is. Well, it's in there. It's stuck in those little minor prophets, those 12, at the end of the Old Testament, and Zephaniah uh, he is a contemporary of people like Jeremiah and Obadiah, other great prophets. Uh, he lived as a, what's called a pre-exilic 
prophetic life. He was there before Israel was taken historically into captivity by the Babylonians. At the same time as possibly King Josiah's great revival. And King Josiah is the last of the notable kings of the nation of Judah. He's the one, if you remember the story, that it's reported to him while doing some construction. Someone discovered, secreted in a wall, the law, and it was brought out. And people had not really paid attention to God's word for quite some time. And Josiah read that, or said that it should be read aloud in his court. And so as the law was read, he called for interpreters, and he realized that his nation was living in great disobedience to God. And he said, let's change things. Let's do things the way God wants us to do. It's called a, a revival. And the people turned to God for a very short period of time. That's the life that Zephaniah lived. Most people think that he was probably a member of the royal family. We don't have any record of him in Babylon. So the likelihood is either that he was killed when that uh, siege and conquest happened, or that he was just left uh, back in Judah, perhaps too old to be taken by the Babylonians like Daniel and his friends were. So that's who Zephaniah is, and I'm going to read uh, starting in verse 14 of chapter 3. Oh, and just one more word as far as preface. There's three parts to this book. The first part of Zephaniah is judgment. It's the kind of thing that you get used to reading when you read the prophets, whether it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so forth. God is angry. You say, well, you just said God is joy. Well, God is joy. He gets really joyful uh, because that's who he is. But at the same time, he expects his covenant people, Israel, to uh, fulfill their side of the covenant. Uh, I will be your God, you will be my people, you live according to my commandments, and I will do all those things that I promised you I would do. It's amazing. But when they didn't do it, then God had to punish them. Now think of it this way. If you're a parent, you know that you have to punish your children once in a while. And even though that's frustrating, and even though you may even venture into being angry, uh, the fact is you still love your child. Uh, you would love nothing more than to go a whole day without having to execute discipline in your home, right? I was just down visiting my uh, grandchildren in Houston. Uh, my wife and I were down there, and there's twin boys who are three, besides a little girl that was just born in late October. And those boys are full boys. I mean, uh, that house is rocking all the time from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to bed. It's mom, 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 mom. Uh, I have one grandson that when he is in trouble, his mom will say, let's do a timeout on the couch. You sit there until I tell you to get off. And little by little, you watch him move towards the edge of the couch, right? And pretty soon, he's got both feet on the ground, and then it's one finger on the couch. <laughs> I'm still on the couch, right? And this, this constant thing is going on between his mother and him. You know, and he knows that if he takes that finger off, he's in big trouble. You know, as a grandparent, I'm sitting there thinking, he should have been in trouble back when he first got that foot off the couch, right? But that's just things that we learn as we raise our kids. Well, God would love to have a whole day where that wasn't necessary in our lives. He'd like us to just be obedient. But when we're not, he has to execute judgment and discipline. That's where he is with his people at the point when this book is written. 
God is judging Israel. The second part of the book is dealing with the tribes around the nation of Israel. Um, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Assyrians, all these people who have participated in executing God's discipline upon his people will someday be judged themselves. And then the third part is looking forward to a time when everything will be great. I, I mean, that's how you parent, right? My daughter is looking forward to when her three-year-olds are possibly 23 years old, you know, or 33, whenever discipline isn't necessary any longer. Uh, that'd be great to just have them come over and behave like they're supposed to behave and enjoy being part of the family, and I don't have to worry about doing discipline. In fact, that's what grandparenting is. You know, we get all the benefits with none of the downside. God just can't wait till his people are in that mode before he can just stop being that God that has to execute judgment. And that's what chapter 3 is all about. So again, back to verse 14. He writes, Zephaniah, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. It's a command. In the Hebrew, it's in the imperative. These are the things that we're supposed to do. Sing aloud, shout, rejoice and exult. God's doing that. We're supposed to do that. This is a mutuality of behavior. It's not just God telling us, you be happy. No, it's both of us entering into that realm of joy, of recognizing that we were created to glorify God. And God, as the creator, is glorifying in us. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. Uh, some people say that Zephaniah's writing here is the most intimate and polished writing in throughout the entire Old Testament. It's fun to read. God is giving us his heart. Well, he goes on in verse 15, and he gives us four reasons to have joy things that are yet to come. This is a prophecy. And even though some of it may have been fulfilled partially, there's still more to come. So four things that he says. He says, first of all, why should we rejoice? One, the Lord has taken away our judgments against us. There'll be no more reason for God to make inquiry as to our sin. Things will be just like I said, just like my daughter who don't have to worry about one son standing off the edge of the couch with his finger on it to test the edge of the envelope to see how far he can go before he is punished. So the day is coming when God will no longer have to judge us. Sin will not be a temptation. Secondly, he has cleared away our enemies. For covenant Israel, this probably is referring to that second part of the book where he's talking about the Moabites, the Ammonites, and so forth. But for us today... What is our enemy? Well, our enemy is probably that of spiritual darkness. As time will go on for the nation of Israel, they will be in darkness, spiritual darkness, silence from God. That's one of the themes of this book is that as the Old Testament closes, and we mentioned this all the way through the season of Advent, uh, the thing that makes Advent so joyful is the fact that God's silence is broken. He no longer is quiet. God, in his execution of his judgment for the disobedience of his people, the covenant people of Israel, has decided at one point to say, nope, 
no more. They will hear no more from me for a time being. No one knew how long that time was going to be. As it was, it turned out to be 400 years. Long time. Uh, for us today, that just seems like an unbelievably long time. How could you even remember there was a God with that kind of time and distance? But God says, now, I'm going to clear away your enemies. There'll be no one put you in that jeopardy any longer. Thirdly, and this is the great truth of this book, God will be in your midst. That is amazing. He says, remember <coughs> that I will be there with you. That's a promise. Now, up to this point, even when things were the best that it could be in Israel, let's say in the Davidic kingdom or under Solomon, God's presence was always limited. If this was the temple and this was the uh, Holy of Holies, the Shekinah glory, his being would be limited to being on the mercy seat behind a large veiled curtain, right? You couldn't just come into the presence of God. Only the high priest could do that once a year. But in what's coming, what's going to be truth in the future, according to the prophecy of Zephaniah, is that God will draw near. He will live among them, living today. Now, this side of the cross in our history, we don't have any problem with that. As Christians, as believers in Christ, we know that God came, that he drew near. And we live in the current benefit of having that relationship with God. The veil has been torn. God is freed from that Holy of Holies because sin is no longer the prevailing condition of his people. Righteousness, holiness, mercy, and grace. Christmas speaks to all of those because of that babe that was born and laid in that manger eventually would grow up and give his life on that cross so that our sins would be atoned for and that we could have a relationship with the Father. And the Holy Spirit was sent, as we sang in that song, the three in one. The Holy Spirit was sent on the day of Pentecost. And those of us who are inheritors of the righteousness of Christ today enjoy the presence of God in our midst. Wow! Now, if that doesn't fill you with joy, nothing will. We have tapped into that joy stream that is God and no matter what our circumstances are in life we have the ability to be joyful and fourthly he says you shall never again have to fear in the Hebrew it literally reads you shall never again see evil what does he mean by that well I think Zephaniah is trying to state this that there will be no crime no sickness no evil intent by others to cause us harm Nature won't work against us. No sickness. But everything is be subject to our needs as God originally intended in the garden. Sin makes a hole in our heart and nothing we pursue in life can fill it. But once this happens, once this prophecy comes fully to light, then we will know why we're here. We will sense that purposeness and we will understand that we were created to do exactly what God wants us to do. As you continue to read down through the end of this book, in verses 18 through 20, uh, God makes seven promises. <coughs> All of them are prefaced with the first person pronoun of I. I will. And those, there's quite a bit of them. I will gather those of you who mourn, in verse 18, for the festival. 
so that you will no longer suffer reproach. I will deal with all of your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you into, I'll bring you in at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. And finally, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. It's like God is tripping over himself to say all the things that he wants to say that are going to make it clear what's coming. Now Christmas, when God did draw near, has come. The first advent happened. And we're saying, well, I don't know if I feel all of those things yet. Well, that's because it's only been partially fulfilled. First advent, Christ's birth, that was only the first step. More is coming. The joy is going to just crowd out everything else in this world. But any time that we see in the New Testament the presence of Christ, we see joyful people, right? The shepherds are out in their fields by night as we sing. And they're told the message that there is something amazing, joyfully amazing happening in town, in Bethlehem, in that, in that stable. Run, run and see it. The angels split the sky open and they're singing and they're joyful. The New Testament continues over and over again with Zephaniah's theme that God has drawn near. See, he was away. Because of our sin, he couldn't come into our presence. And because of repeated discipline and rejection of God, repeated discipline and rejection of God, repeated discipline and rejection of God, God decided to say, okay, I'll give you what you're asking for. Full independence, autonomy. You can live life your way. See how it goes. And Israel did that. And no one better than the people who were alive at the time of Christ's birth understood more easily that that just doesn't work. What do you want from God this morning? Autonomy? You feel like God has given you a raw deal? You can do better yourself? You're finding happiness hard to come by? You don't even understand this concept of joy that we're talking about? Well, let me just say this. God is drawn near. The theme of Zephaniah's whole prophecy is it's, it's, God is near. In verses 15 and 17, he says, God is in your midst. The Hebrew word there, kereb, it just better translated means among or midst. God is there. He's not going to stay away any longer. But because of Jesus coming, God is no longer worried about your sin because your sin has been atoned for. He now can dwell with us. Paul says in Romans 10, 6, and I love this. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. It's the same concept. God is there. John 12, the gospel writer says, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to him crying. This is on Passion Week. Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel, he's finally arrived. They can't believe it's happening in their lifetime. They've waited so long. Hebrews 1, 
long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God drew near when Jesus came. It was the fulfillment of what God had been predicting. That quiet, the darkness, the isolation is over. John 1, 14, one of my favorite passages. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen, we have seen his glory. So for me, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Ephesians 2, Paul writes, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and the strangers to the covenant of promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been brought near. You see, when God came into us, when his, karev, when his midst, his presence came into our life, he brought with him all those things that we're talking about through the Advent season. Faith, hope, love, joy. It's there for the taking, friends. Why live the way that you've been living? Why struggle throughout life trying to find purpose when God is here? He's not just talking to his covenant people of Israel either. I, I love this passage in Matthew chapter 24, speaking to the fact that it's even going to get better than it is right now. Here he says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. On oh, Here it is. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Is there anything better than having God in your life? Happiness may be hard to come by. Joy is there for the taking. It's transcendent. It's limitless. It's eternal. It's who God is. Don't get caught up in all the Christmas stuff of this world, of our culture. It's not about the amount of money you spend or the gifts you get. It's not even about family and friends coming together. It's about understanding that 2,000 years ago, the Christ, the Messiah, fulfilled the promises of God by coming into this world and bringing with him, near to us, those attributes of God that we are created to exalt in, to rejoice in. Shout, exalt, rejoice. The Savior has come. I'm going to close this morning with one more example of this, and I love this story. From Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 25. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was already upon him. And it had been revealed to him by this Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. In other words, he'd been waiting just like all the other people in his day, waiting, waiting, waiting. When is God's silence going to be over? How much longer is he going to discipline me? 
how much longer is this punishment going to last? And the Holy Spirit told him, you will not die, Simeon, before seeing the revelation of my promise, the child, the Messiah. And so it says, he came into the spirit, into the temple, and when the parents, that's Joseph and Mary, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took up his arms and blessed God and said, and this is a great magnificat of his own, his praise to the Lord. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What a moment. All of his life he had been waiting, hoping, I'm sure at times doubting, whether God was ever going to make an appearance, whether Zephaniah's prophecy about drawing near was ever going to happen. And there it was, that baby. Joseph and Mary didn't know what was going on. I mean, this was just really the eighth day of Jesus' life. The, the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh and, the, and the, the magi, they hadn't even come yet. That would be down the road. They're at the temple doing what they're supposed to do in obedience to the commandments of God. And here's this old man and says, look at this. My joy is complete. The Messiah how much more should we be rejoicing? How much more should Christmas mean to us? It's not about the gifts. It's not about the feasting. It's not about Uncle Earl, Aunt Bessie. It's not about coming back together and sharing memories. All those things are great. But it's really about the joy. God is here. When it says the Lord is near, it's actually grammatically able to be translated as God is here. God is here. Think about those people in this first century, Joseph and Mary's contemporaries. Many of them, if not all of them, had woken up on that first Christmas morning. Maybe they had been waiting. Maybe they were aware of the fact that there was a promise yet to be fulfilled. But the likelihood is just most of them thought this is going to be another day. Another day. And yet, God's plan was fully in action. As I, I said before, uh, Galatians, the fullness of time was come. God sent forth his son. These people didn't realize, but their world was changed forever that morning. Jesus became a man. The incarnation had happened. The holy of holies, the temple, was no longer necessary. God drew near. It's the causation of joy. It's the realization of joy. It's the action of joy. I can be in the presence of God. And those people who were so blessed to know Jesus in the flesh in those days, who saw him do his miracles, who heard him preach, who, who agreed to follow his path, they saw it with their eyes. But Jesus tells us this, greater is your faith 
You who've never seen, never heard, and you're just taking it from what you've read and from the testimonies given. Oh, man, your joy is going to be so complete. And the cool part of it is you can have it now. Uh, the people of Jesus' day, they had the same problems we do. They lived in their, an impressive government, the Romans. They could kill anyone they wanted whenever they wanted. They could take your money. They could steal your goods. They could take your livestock. They were lived with some crazy religious leaders, right? People that were supposed to know God, but when in fact, they didn't act like it. They certainly didn't seem to have an understanding of his word. They were poor. Finances were not easy. There was injustice. People who were not in were left out. There was sickness. Didn't matter. God's plan was put into action. The baby came. The first advent was just there. Now, we today, we're waiting for the second advent, for the second time that Jesus comes back. And it's easy to think, oh, God has forgotten us. It's been 2,000 years, 2,600 years since Zephaniah's prophecy. And as great as the first advent was, it doesn't fulfill all the promises that Zephaniah's prophecy lays out for us. There's more yet to come. So exciting. Are you waiting in eager anticipation as Simeon was? Do you have that kind of faith? Oh, Lord, may I not die before I see your son return. He came the first time in a way no one expected. At a time in history that no one could have possibly anticipated. But he came. And everything has been changed since then. He's coming again. His church needs to have the message that he is coming again. And we need to be busy doing our things in obedience to God and the plan of salvation, not only for us and for those we love, but for our entire community, for our world. Because we believe. And who knows? Maybe you will be the generation to see that happen. Father, we thank you for this morning. We praise you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the promises that you have made to us. As Zephaniah says, you are drawing near. You're here. And we have that joy. We have that hope. Lord, I know there are people here today that are hurting, that have had things happen in life that were unjust, that care, that feel that you don't care, but Father, may they bring their cars in, their hearts in for a fill-up. May they plug into your joy this morning and have the faith to believe, Father, that you know them and you love them and your purpose for them is yet to happen. Lord God, may we walk with you in the truth of that and may we truly be a joyful people as we encourage one another and as we are a light to those in darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.